Welcome to MuggleCast, your weekly ride into the Wizarding World fandom. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. This week, we are looking at burning questions that Deathly Hallows didn't answer when the book was released 15 years ago this month. And this is going to kick off a series of discussions looking back at the seventh and final Harry Potter book. Oh, I guess I can't say that anymore. There is an eighth story now. <laughs> Let's still pretend it is the final book. It really is the final yeah. book. Well, is. and speaking of burning, my background. Yes. Yeah. Micah, you are the king of Zoom backgrounds. You know, I figured I might as well tie it into each week's episode in some way. I really enjoyed being in Umbridge's office a couple weeks ago. That was a lot of fun. And this week, Micah has the U.S. book cover from Deathly Hallows as his Zoom background. Now, I noticed, though, that it doesn't say Harry Potter. I, maybe that was intentional? I mean, Mary Grand Prix didn't draw Harry Potter oh, onto true. the cover. Yeah. She just did and the Deathly Hallows. I wonder if she even knew that the books were titled Harry Potter, like, because she should have. <laughs> she could have. Never mind. That's a stupid joke. By book seven, I would hope, but. <laughs> By book seven, yeah. So anyway, it's been 15 years since the seventh and final book was released, and we're going to have a few discussions about it this month. First. We have some exciting news. It's time to reveal the physical gifts for patrons in 2022, this year's gifts. We got a couple of really good ones. So there are two, and I'm going to explain what's going on. So as we previously shared, this year we are introducing the MuggleCast Collectors Club. And each year for the next five years, we, we will be sending $5 patrons and higher four to five brand new exclusive vinyl stickers that make references to MuggleCast past and present. And we will also be sending you, and I have it sitting right here, the MuggleCast Collector's Club card. This is an 11 by 17 inch art print. It is beautiful. Show it up. Show it up for those who are on video. We never hear that during MeUndies or any of the other ads. Like, show it up. Show it up. (laughs) (laughs) So this is an 11 by 17 inch art print where you will find slots for every sticker that will be released over the next five years. The art for both the stickers and the club card were designed by MuggleCast album art designer Anna, who, like I said, came up with really gorgeous artwork and we're printing this on some good paper. So it feels like a sturdy, a sturdy club card. The MuggleCast Collectors Club is available to all patrons who pledge $5 or more. And in future years, we will be also offering opportunities to score extra stickers if you complete certain activities. And more details on those at a later date. Think of like the state quarter program that happened here in America a while ago. Yeah. I love that it's the boats going to Hogwarts, uh, the design. Yes. And you place the stickers kind of leading up to Hogwarts. It's... It turned out really nice. Did you guys place your stickers yet? Yeah. The first four stickers, two of them have references that you'll probably get very quickly, but the other two, you might have to think a little harder on the sticker designs. We're already working on next year's stickers, and they look great too, so it's going to be a lot of fun. So that's the Collector's Club. Again, patrons who pledge $5 or more will get this every year for the next five years. And going forward... Patrons who are pledged at the Slug Club level will be getting a second unique gift each year. This year's gift is one we can't believe we didn't come up with sooner. It's really been (laughs) just like sitting there right in front of us and, and we never thought of it until this year. But we will have Harry and Hagrid make the introduction for this one. 
I still need a wand. A wand? Well, you want Ollivanders. There ain't no place better. That's right. Call us Ollivanders because we <laughs> are offering Slug Club patrons this year the MuggleCast Wand. This is a handmade, hand-painted wand made by Heartwood Wands, the very popular Etsy wand maker. But we teamed up with them to design this wand. It measures 11 inches, and it has a Mike Bolt wand core. It also has MuggleCast, the word MuggleCast, burnt into one of the sides of the wand, and it sports a dark crimson and gold color design. You will also receive a special bonus with your wand that will help you get started with it. Spells. We made some spells. So that is what we're offering this year. Oh, I have it too. Here's the wand. I'm going to be like our friend Tyler. He's always brandishing a wand when he's uh, on MuggleCast. Uh, (laughs) We need to start talking. (laughs) I'm going to hold it, try to hold it for the rest of the episode. So this is it. Well, that's what we're all going to do from now on, right? Yeah. That's right. Once we get ours. Yeah. Currently, there's only one in existence. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I I do think you need to um, test out one of the spells. Petrificus Gotalis. Boom. Ah. (laughs) Oh, look at that. Look, there's a goat in Eric's camera. Hey, everybody. We're podcasting. (laughs) And I'm Eric. How's it going, guys? The MuggleCast wand available to Slug Club patrons this year. We create these gifts to thank everybody for their support of the show. And we really try to come up with some really original ideas. And we're really proud of the gifts this year, as we are every year. If you aren't a patron yet, but want to receive one or both of these, become a patron by August 7th of this year. That's our 17th birthday. And remain pledged at the 5 or $10 level to receive your gifts later this year. You must fill out the order form by August 14th for both items in order to receive them. We require you fill out the order form so we can be sure we have your current mailing address and to make sure that you want the gift or gifts. And we're aiming to have all of all of this delivered by November. Longest running patrons will receive the first deliveries, assuming you fill out the form in a timely manner. And we do apologize that we will likely not have the wand to you by start of the new term at Hogwarts. But we did speak with McGonagall and she has approved mid-year wand swaps. So you can use the MuggleCast wand for the remainder of the year. So that's it. Good stuff. Enjoy, everybody. We're really excited about all of this. Yeah. And by the way, if you're a $5 patron, you want to get the wand, you can upgrade. There are instructions on the Patreon. Absolutely. With that, Micah, what are we doing on today's episode? So on today's episode, we're going to be talking about those burning questions that Deathly Hallows didn't answer. So the book was released back on July 21st of 2007, and were any of us the next day saying to ourselves, hey, what about this? What about that? Why didn't the author give us these answers to burning questions that uh, we just wanted to know about? So I-, I figure the best place to start, though, is, and I know it was a long time ago, but do we remember being satisfied with the book overall and Despite these burning questions, did we get the conclusion to the series that we all wanted? And I say this knowing there's at least one person on this panel that didn't really like the seventh book. I don't know if his um, feelings have changed over time, but um, Eric, I thought maybe we could start with you. 
Not to put oh, you on the spot. Say, let's, <laughs> let's not start with me. No, well, the interesting thing, and we're calling this out, we're going to be talking about this, I think, more next episode as well. But I do remember, you know, as we were talking about, first of all, the predominant emotion that I think we were all feeling was exhaustion, right? Because we stayed up all night, you know, the midnight release, we stayed up all night, tried to read as much of the book. Some of us finished it. One of us had read it the week earlier. <laughs> Kevin got a, an advanced copy, I think. I seem to recall speaking up towards the end of episode 101 and just saying, but like, I feel like maybe Voldemort made one or two many mistakes. His book six really sets up uh, a compelling villain. We were, I mean, we did whole episodes. This is the problem with starting our podcast when book six came out and letting the first hundred episodes of theories take us all the way to book seven is inevitably we're going to have higher expectations, I think, than would normally occur. And so a lot of our theories, you know, we were like, I think we did a whole episode. Uh, is Harry going to die? Because he's screwed. He's not like a good student at all. He's in trouble. Uh, and things like that kind of coasted us to this area where I was like, JK Rowling is going to impress us so much. Harry is going to like put his head down and study. He's going to become like a competent wizard. And Voldemort, which was set up so well in Half-Blood Prince to be this methodical, the way that he like twisted people and got like Hepzibah Smith to give him the relic and all this stuff. I was just like leading into this amazing story that I think in the end, a lot of things in Deathly Hallows plot happen conveniently and happen by luck and happenstance. And Harry kind of gets out of it the way that he normally gets out of it. And I think for that reason, I think I was a little upset because I think, I just remember thinking that that Voldemort in particular was not exactly as compelling as I thought he was even as recently as book six. I think expectations are so high with something like this, the final book in a series that many people are inevitably going to be at least a little let down. But I think all things considered, it did end up being a very good ending. I was just looking for Harry to defeat Voldemort. And of course, we were kind of all <laughs> expecting that. I got what I wanted. I didn't need so many character deaths. There were quite a few in this book, especially oh. with the Battle of Hogwarts. But I think, you know, like Hedwig was so <laughs> out of the left field shocking. <laughs> I'm still not over that one. It cleared enough bars for me to be satisfied. And I think to your point, Eric, about Harry doing things his usual way, Voldemort making some mistakes. In a way, Rowling's back was up against the wall. Like, she just had to get things done, you know, in a single book. That was it. There wasn't a chance to write another book and spread things out further. She info dumps were happening. Convenient plot points were happening because she had to get it done. And we'll get to a couple of those convenient plot points later. I would say overall, yes, I was satisfied by the book and the way the story wrapped. But I'm going to keep harping on about this. I've been talking about this since before book seven came out. I was convinced that we were going to see more of the Department of Mysteries, that we were going to get some answers there because it felt like we got so much set up for it in Order of the Phoenix. It felt inevitable that we would go back there. Remember all the theories about the veil and what the veil meant and even looking at the cover for the American version. The cover, which we 
analyzed Micah's lock screen yes. right now, if everybody or the Zoom background, we speculated that that was in the Coliseum because the veil room is described as being like this Coliseum. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't look like the Great Hall at all. No, we <laughs> analyzed this to death. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to death. Back in the day. Yeah. I just really felt that we were going to go back there and I thought it was a letdown that we didn't and that we didn't get mm-hmm. more answers. Something that I will say is while I hated all of the death. Um, Some of you might remember that when I got to the part where Hedwig died, I immediately burst into tears. It was like, I think 1.30 a.m. So I was exhausted and excited and like full of emotions. And then Hedwig died like five chapters into the book. I do think I remember you crying, actually. (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, oh, my God, this is going to be this book for me. I do appreciate always a story where death has weight. I feel like oftentimes in fantasy stories, death doesn't have weight because people are like coming back from the dead. Harry is, of course, the notable exception to this in this book series. But (laughs) in all other cases, death is real and people aren't just coming back from it in these books, which I really appreciate. I feel like it it removes the impact if you've got characters just coming back from the dead willy nilly. Yeah. I, I agree. And the veil was actually something we got a number of questions about. No surprise that we didn't get more uh, kind of information on it. So we'll talk a little bit about that later. And actually, I think maybe Mary Grand Prix is a bit to blame for thinking that we were going back to the Department of Mysteries because she talked about it when we interviewed her years and years and years ago that, in fact, the curtains that are on the Deathly Hallows US cover mirror the curtains that are on the Sorcerer's Stone cover. And it's sort of the opening act and the ending act. And that was what she was going for. Little did she realize we all thought that it was the veil. Oh, right. I thought we knew that, but maybe not. That it was supposed to be like symmetrical with maybe the curtains again. Maybe we did, again. but uh, she confirmed it 100%. That's so fun. But for me, I, yeah, I mean, I felt like I got the conclusion that I was hoping for. As Laura, you were talking about death. The one thing that kind of surprised me about the final book, though, aside from Bellatrix and Voldemort, there's not really a whole lot of death that happens on the bad side. We see everything that happens on the quote unquote good side. And I guess that we know a lot more of those characters. So that makes sense. They've been developed throughout the course of the series, but it did feel a little uneven, a little bit unbalanced. Yeah, it's a good point. But I do feel like the major points, like if you read What Will Happen in Harry Potter 7, Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Falls in Love, and How the Adventure Finally Ends, something along those lines. Is that the title? That great I think you got it book. Right. Yes. Go on. Yeah. I, I feel like most of those major questions did get conclusion. But of course, we're diehards and we want to know more. We want to know everything. I'll say, too, that I think um, a lot of the people that I've heard from throughout the years that really like Deathly Hallows and 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 even call it like their favorite of the Harry Potter books, I think that they're speaking more towards an emotional conclusion. You know, there is a lot of resolution. There's a lot of great character moments. If we think about, you know, the would-be Petunia and Dudley redemption, um, and even just the whole end of the forest again when Harry chooses to sacrifice himself for the friends he loves, like... People have that on repeat on the audiobook when they go to bed. It's Mm -hmm. like as a soothing thing because our hero is really deciding to be the hero that we all know he can be. 
And those are moments you don't look over or gloss over that you can't forget. There are important moments that happen in this book that really bring the story to a conclusion. And for that, it's very strong. Along those lines, which characters do we feel then got the most disappointing resolution in Deathly Hallows? Yeah, so this one came to me pretty quickly. I The one who consistently bothers me after all this time is Draco. <laughs> and especially after seeing Cursed Child, because Cursed Child showed he became a redeemable character. He's a good father to Scorpius. And he has a pretty good relationship. I mean, there's some bumps in the road in Cursed Child, but he's friendly with um, the trio. This guy in the core seven books, he was forced into trying to kill Dumbledore. He deserved to have his image cleaned up more after the Battle of Hogwarts. And sure, he and Crab and Goyle wanted to bring Harry to Voldemort, but Draco was just trying to save the reputation of the Malfoy family amongst their pals. Draco was forced into doing, like, he he was a bully, but he was forced into doing, and he was raised to be that type of bully. But then he broke that mold after book seven. And for those reasons, we should have seen a little more of that redemption arc maybe after Battle of Hogwarts. Yeah, I agree. If there was anything other than the epilogue, which all of a sudden you're far future. Yeah. I would have liked to have seen maybe Draco and Harry have a conversation in, you know, amongst the rubble. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Just a little line, sort of like what you get out of Dudley. In the book. Yeah. 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 You don't know what it means, but you know, you kind of like it. You right. Know, it gets like, you thinking. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah I've, I've, I'll jump in here because I'm echoing Andrew on this one. I tried to think of a different character so we didn't double up, but genuinely speaking, Draco is that person for me. And I couldn't think of anyone else who made me feel, um, you know, sort of more like there was something lacking. There was a little bit of character development that I think we could have used towards the end of the books. And and Draco is that character for me. We know that he doesn't fully emerge from that evil cocoon until, you know, he's off screen at some point after the events of Deathly Hallows. And, you know, we see him reformed in Cursed Child. There's that one moment in the epilogue where he kind of nods at Harry at platform nine and three quarters. And on the one hand, I I don't think it's unreasonable to say that it probably took Draco some time to work through everything and to reject his parents' ideologies. But I think it would have been nice to see a hint of this coming towards the end of the book. I actually, this is a call out to the movie, and I wish they had kept it in. They had a deleted scene where Draco threw Harry a wand during the Battle of Ugh. Hogwarts, and he's he's like, Potter, and he throws him a wand. Oh, my God. I think something small like that would have gone a long way to foreshadowing that we could expect this for Draco. And I actually kind of wish they would have kept this in the movie. Yes. That would have been great. I think maybe we did a bonus muggle cast on that and other scenes. Because I remember us playing that clip, and it's like, it's a behind-the-scenes shot. It's not an official deleted scene, if you want to call it that. But there was, yeah, this behind-the-scenes shot that Laura's describing. Um, mm, that would have been so cool. Right? That would have been Agreed. great. But anyway, I'm glad you agree with me, Laura. <laughs> well, especially because they both save each other's lives. So there's a connection mm-hmm. there, right? Yeah. Harry is saved at Malfoy Manor. Draco is saved in the Room of Requirement. Maybe that's their way of acknowledging each other in some form. But I I 
agree. I, I would have liked to see something more substantial between the two of them. Eric, what about you? If I'm talking about characters that I feel were disserved uh, or, or given a disservice, done a disservice to in the writing, it's Tonks and Lupin. Starting with the end where their death happens off screen, but actually just going backwards, uh, Tonks in particular, uh, her whole character arc throughout Deathly Hallows, but also Half-Blood Prince, where she's introduced in Order of the Phoenix as this cool, competent, quirky horror. We grow to love her very quickly. And she's just hobbled by this, what we understand to be heartache over this Lupin thing throughout book six. And her Patronus changes shape. And she just becomes like crippled by her emotions. And I'm going to say this. As much as the author is credited with writing strong women characters, I think that the writing of Tonks the whole way through, in especially considering her fate, is not feminist. I don't think that Tonks is given the right ending, and I think that Tonks' inability to kind of go with the flow regarding her romantic interest and having Snape even make like snide comments to her is very sad and hard and hard to read and and just knowing that she you know maybe she goes out in a blaze of glory with her loved one finally coming back to her but we don't see it so i'm just like well that character who we know is awesome we can't even necessarily grieve properly i grieve the writing more than i grieve that character yeah in a lot of ways i think ultimately in most ways tonks's destiny was tied to lupin and what he wanted to do and what he planned to do. And I think that therein lies the problem. You know, I think it's very realistic to show someone experiencing the effects of heartache and maybe not being, you know, the strongest version of themselves because they're hurt and they're vulnerable and they need to heal. That's fine. But I think ultimately tying her fate to Lupin is what I didn't care for. I definitely agree with you there, Eric. And also Lupin, you know, and his whole kind of, I, I, it came out of left field for me where. Oh, when he shows up at Grim Old Place and is like, I want to join the cause. Yeah. Cost- I you- was feeling two things in that moment. One, they need Lupin because they did not do their studying after all. So I was thrilled. But then Harry just kicks his ass out. He's like, no, go back to your wife. (laughs) Well, yeah, because it was very clear that Lupin, his motivation for being there was that he was scared of being a father. So he was effectively walking out on his pregnant wife to go camping with three teenagers. Messed up. At the same time, they needed him. But I wish it was done in a way that made more sense like made him not like a father who would abandon his wife and kid and also for harry to call him out yes that was the right thing to do but i felt it was out of character for harry also because lupin is one of his closest like only father figure if you're really going to be risking your life you're gonna want lupin there i think more than you would want him to be with his wife and kid i i don't know it's interesting i have a lot of feels about this one too and and i think One of the things that bothers me too is that we don't see what happens to them. It's all off screen, right? It's when Harry comes back in to the Great Hall and he he sees them there that we learn what happened to Remus and Tonks. And and we're told later on that I think it's Dolohov that kills Lupin and it's Bellatrix, her aunt, who kills Tonks. And Hmm. again, we're not privy to that. Um, We don't see how it goes down. I'm not saying we would 
want to see how it goes down, but I, I do feel like, and, and I'll get to this, I guess, when I talk about Mad-Eye too, but it almost feels like you don't do the character justice by killing them kind of off page. I don't know if you guys agree with that. No, yeah. absolutely. It's not the fact that they died. Think about how like Dumbledore was killed, right? Main characters can die in right. a way that I think is, that serves the plot, that's satisfactory, that feels earned. But a lot of characters, I mean, I even kind of have issue with Sirius's death. Was he hit by a spell or was it him going through the veil that killed him? Like, yeah. what is it? The ambiguity there is just like, I can't properly grieve until I have all the answers. Um, it just, yeah, it's it seems like it didn't, it seems like poorly handled, even though it was a choice was made, which all choices have to be made. But yeah. So with Mad Eye, uh, I, I felt like first off, he is the greatest, or he's looked at as the greatest aura of all time. Number one, the manner in which he's killed. Never mind the fact that he's kind of killed off page. Mm. He, I'm presuming, decides to take Dung with him because. Dung is the most likely person to try and pull something, and he doesn't want to put any of the others at risk. However, it's just, and and then, don't get me wrong, I do like the fact that it's Voldemort himself who does this. But again, there's no ability for Mad Eye to be able to return fire, to do anything in the moment where you could have seen maybe this epic battle going on between the Dark Lord and the greatest horror that ever existed. It's kind of disappointing in a way. And and I think he's undignified. I think he deserved better, right? He's protecting a guy whose name literally means shit. And <laughs> that's the manner in which he dies. It's kind of crappy. Amazing. <laughs> I feel like even they couldn't make it satisfying in the movie either. It's literally just Bill walking up and being like, Mad Eye's dead. <laughs> the delivery of that wasn't great. And no. the irony of that is that is that's actually Brendan Gleason's son who's delivering the news. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right about the poor manner in which the character died. And maybe there's a parallel to real life. Like not every hero in the real world is going to get a hero's death. Some people are going to be gunned down or there'll be a car accident or some, you know, very undignified for the, you know, this stuff happens in the world today. But even knowing that, even knowing that it's possibly realistic, in a book series, you can smidge the rules a little bit. And I think too many characters were given that kind of like shitty offing that like, and, and by the time we read, I mean, Hedwig was a huge surprise, but by the time we read Dobby's death, it felt cruel. It felt vindictive. It felt like the author was deliberately killing our favorites, so much so that years later, we were getting public apologies for killing characters. <laughs> she, must have sensed, yeah. she must have sensed that she well, went a little hard on killing everybody, right? No, I actually disagree. I think it's a little tongue-in-cheek okay. when she does that. It's kind of a tribute to these so characters too. more so than like a genuine, oh, I really- Attrition. I wish of... I didn't do that. Yeah. yeah she, I yeah. think she stands by every single death. But I think she's also said that this is this is war. It's unpredictable. It's messy. Not everybody's going to get a whole death scene. And let's also think about if- Everybody did get a proper death scene, fully detailed, written out. That could here we we need a, like a drinking game, and this is one of the words on the bingo card. The pacing it slows down the pacing uh, if you have to pause every time somebody's died, especially during a battle. Tonks and Lupin, for example, or even Rima or um uh, Mad Eye, that would slow things down if suddenly we. It could if we have to focus on this, any of these particular characters dying. So I'm not really fussed about it. Yeah. yeah. 
It's a great point. The way that the scene was written is is there was just mass chaos. There were spells that were going in mm-hmm. every different direction you could possibly imagine. So I understand that. And and then, you know, you you experience Hedwig's death because you're obviously with Harry, but then you don't learn about Mad Eye until the next chapter or a little bit later on in that same chapter because Harry wasn't with Mad Eye, nor did he see what happened. So I get it. But I would have liked to have seen Mad Eye wheeling and dealing at the Battle of Hogwarts. Yeah, your your point was good that he's a very powerful wizard. He deserved a better send off. Yeah. Well, I think too it might have been a commentary with with Mad Eye in particular about trusting the irredeemable. Uh, so somebody like Dung, who is just completely cowardice, like completely a coward, still manages to align himself with like the good guys, but he's worth less than his name. And his choice to supervise Dung specifically for that reason, ultimately is what led to his downfall. Mad Eye was was kind in that way. And he said, this guy is going to be my responsibility. So when Dung sees Voldemort and apparates and just completely pieces out, that's Mad Eye's responsibility because Mad Eye was not stupid and not even necessarily gullible, but he he led with sort of his open heart, his protective nature. And the dark side, the bad guys would certainly exploit that at any chance because they know that we care. We the good guys. Yeah. Right. I can't wait until our next In Defense Of episode when I get to make y'all defend Mundungus Fletcher. (laughs) Oh, He was sort of like on track to be defended during the episode we did that, but we just ran out of time. Um, but rest assured, we are going to do it. I need to do my I need to do my research for that. I wonder if there's any Mundungus sympathetic fan fictions that uh, will probably give me more character things to latch onto. Where I'm like, yes, someone somewhere wrote that. Okay, so let's get to some specific questions that were not answered in the course of Deathly Hallows or after. I know with this first one, Andrew, it's a question you've been really wanting to ask for a very long time. I've never stopped speaking about this. That's the background I should have used. (laughs) (laughs) This one, you know, it's justified. Lavender Brown, dead or alive? The classic age-old question. I I used to tweet the author, never got a response. What really grinded my gears was when Pottermore, now Pottermore.com, created a Uh, page for lavender and it said lavender was presumed dead and i'm like you're the official source what what do you mean presumed dead get an official answer but here's the quote from the book two bodies fell from the balcony overhead as they reached the ground a gray blur that harry took for an animal sped four-legged across the hall to sink its teeth into one of the fallen no shrieked hermione and with a deafening blast from her wand Fenrir Greyback was thrown backward from the feebling stirring body of Lavender Brown. Feebly stirring. So she could have survived that. Or maybe she died. But we never got an official answer. It's interesting that Lavender seems to be the only character whose death is still a mystery. Because like I was just saying, death is messy and there's not a lot of time to get into all the details in a book. And uh, yet this, this one still after all this time is a mystery. Well, and if she is alive, is she a werewolf now? Right. You would think so. Yeah. I mean, you would think if she was alive, we would have a pretty straightforward yes or no answer yeah. to that, which tends to make me think she's dead. I've been leading with the assumption that she's dead all these years, but not having the official confirmation 
is a little bit maddening after all this time. An alternate version of Cursed Child where she's the villain of uh, <laughs> the story because she's angry that more people weren't didn't have her back when Greyback attacked. And they didn't check up on her to see if she was okay for the next five years. Yeah. You know, I'll go ahead and accept and agree with Laura that Lavender probably did die. I do feel like if she was alive, maybe she would have appeared in Cursed Child or she just would have popped up somewhere somehow. Okay, so here's another question that I had. This is, I hope it's not too random. Was laying the Elder Wands back in Dumbledore's tomb after the Battle of Hogwarts really a good idea? It seems like a security nightmare to me. (laughs) It's not like the tomb is locked. Harry is the master of the Elder Wand, right? Even after he puts it in the tomb and it's the, his power is going to die with him. But that's not the most secure place to put the Elder Wand. It's kind of predictable. If you're looking for the most powerful wand ever known to exist, you would go to the most recently alive, most powerful wizard ever known to exist and just assume that they're one and the same. It, it, it seems like Harry either should have, I don't know, put it at Gringotts, but we've shown that that place is not impregnable or carried it with him. Harry is going off to a lifelong career as an auror. Keep the wand. Keep yeah. the unbeatable wand. Give your do yourself a favor. Don't make your wife and kids worry about you like every day at work when you're putting your life in danger to remove the world's remaining death eaters and bad dark wizards. Yeah. Like Keep it. I actually kind of think the way the movie does it is better with Harry snapping the wand and throwing the two pieces off the bridge. I kind of, I kind of agree. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Except he didn't fix his original wand before he did that. <laughs> I remember seeing the movie and being like, "Okay, I get changing this," but he didn't fix his wand. Well, Harry, become a MuggleCast patron today, and you can get the MuggleCast wand, eleven inches. I love oh the idea of marketing our wand specifically <laughs> to Harry, who do- movie Harry, who do- who doesn't have a wand anymore. It is an interesting point, though, about you know I understand it's wizarding tradition to bury wizards with their wands, but you would think Dumbledore, knowing that he was gonna die, would have been like, yo. Don't bury me with that because <laughs> I know what it is and I know who's going to be looking for it. Right. Well, I, it guarantees he's exhumed at some yeah. point. Like it, it means no matter what, his body's not staying at rest. No, I mean, this goes into the whole how much everything was just up to chance because Harry disarming Draco, there's no guarantee that that's ever going to happen. So we know that. Voldemort is going to be in pursuit of the Elder Wand. He goes, he gets it. If Harry hadn't disarmed Draco, is it presumed then that Voldemort would have won that duel between the two of them? Probably. My head is spinning. Yeah, yeah probably. Because Harry doesn't have the protection. Right. Yeah. But also the wand wasn't working right for Voldemort because he wasn't the master. Also, like, would Dumbledore really want to be reunited with the Elder Wand? In his tomb after everything that happens. <laughs> I don't You know I what I mean? That. Like, yeah. <laughs> I would have buried it out in the desert, breaking bad style. I would have put it in a in a canister and just like <laughs> walked fifteen miles out into the middle of nowhere, <laughs> south of Albuquerque, New Mexico, and <laughs> just buried it. There. Also very Obi-Wan style. You think he would have preferred Grindelwald's wand in his tomb, or is that a loaded question? Oh <laughs> my gosh. <laughs> yes. Yes. The answer is yes. Because didn't Grindelwald have it at one point, too? Yeah. 
both those men held the same wand in their hands. Okay, anyway, um, we, with uh, the, the whole Elder Wand thing in the book, though, the way it's written, it is sort of its own continuance because, you know, somebody somewhere, some probably a dark wizard or just a scholar that wants to understand better what happened will be looking for that wand. And so it honestly leaves it open to so much future to for Harry just to put it back in Dumbledore's tomb and not destroy it. Well, didn't he leave it in the headmaster's office at the end of the series? No, he put it in I, the tomb. Yeah, I Googled this and yeah. it does say... He labels it back. Oh, MuggleNet says that. So, yeah, I don't know. Oh, okay. In either case, it makes absolutely zero sense that Harry would not want to try and hide this <laughs> a bit better, knowing that eventually somebody's going to be looking for it. Right. This is my point. And I just don't feel like the tomb is particularly secure. Well, and again, I'll say that I'll say this again. For somebody who's devoting his uh future life to the protection of the wizarding world, making sure dark objects don't fall in the wrong hands. Yes. For him to not take it with him is pretty ridiculous and alarmingly so. It's alarmingly careless. For sure. Yeah. I, I he should have just put it in that bag Hermione has and you never find it. It's just in there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody would find that thing then. Only Hermione cuz she knows how it's all arranged. Yeah. Well, until Cursed Child, it would probably come back then. Laura, you had a, a really good question that we also heard from a number of listeners about, and, and it really has to do with the resolution for some of the other characters uh, that are more on the Death Eater side of things. You know, What kind of retributions were there for Death Eaters and Voldemort sympathizers after this second war? And particularly, we're thinking about the Malfoys, we're thinking about Umbridge, what happened to them and, and were they held accountable? Uh, I think Potter No More talks a little bit about what befell Umbridge. I believe she was put on trial and convicted, uh, but we don't get anything in the books. You know, they all they all kind of slither away and, and we're presumed that, you know, they'll be held accountable, but there's there's no actual text to support that. Just like the first Wizarding War, where it is described to us in the books that people who were Voldemort sympathizers sort of leaned on the excuse of being cursed or otherwise intimidated into doing things that they didn't actually want to do. So that's how you see characters like Lucius Malfoy, who is clearly a bad guy, operating at the government level throughout all of these books. And I just found myself thinking, did we not learn our lesson the first time? <laughs> About just letting these people be like, oh, all right, well, I'm just going to go back to living my normal life now, even though they were known associates. You have to believe it'd be different this time. It's the same with the American Civil War and whatever's coming next in America. I just think like you, these people who are actively harming and not not to mention Harry has firsthand account experience of these Death Eater people acting against him or people close to him have firsthand accounts of these people choosing to be evil. So you have to prosecute, you have to restore faith in the law that it's going to do the right thing and punitize people who were death eaters. Otherwise you have no peace. Yeah. I, I, and I think it would have been nice to hear a little bit, maybe it's just something in passing that we hear uh, towards the end of the last chapter, or maybe even in the epilogue, we we learn something about what happened to either the Malfoys or Umbridge. Um, another question that I know we've talked about a lot on this show is is related to how 
Hogwarts uh, is a security nightmare. But Laura, you're wondering what kind of precautions were put in place uh, after all of this happened. That probably can fill an entire episode. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you have to wonder after this event, you know, after everything that's happened, Chamber of Secrets being opened twice, convicted felon entering Hogwarts and, you know, Voldemort cursing the Triwizard Tournament, later convincing students to like come to the Department of Mysteries. There have been a number of security breaches at this school. And you would think that the Battle of Hogwarts, the culmination of the Second Wizarding War, would be enough to make, you know, the governors of Hogwarts, the headmaster, the staff be like, you know what, we need better security. Even just Hermione, who we know Mm -hmm. becomes the Minister for Magic in Britain, she herself as an 11-year-old got into places no 11-year-old, no matter how many books they've read at that age, should be able to get in. So she alone, if not Kingsley before her, should have implemented the strictest security protocols. But the only thing that tells me they didn't is Cursed Child when their children all just break into the ministry (laughs) using polyjuice and get into her bookcase stash safe. (laughs) Ah, there are no protections. Don't they use Alohomora? Come on, Hermione. (laughs) These people are incapable of learning from their mistakes. The, The trio I'm speaking of. Uh, so nothing happened. And maybe they were so foolish as to think, well, now that Voldemort's defeated, nothing ever bad could ever happen again. So why do we need to lock down the school further? Complacency is dangerous. At least put up metal detectors. Like we see that <laughs> happening across across this country. Add some metal detectors. They should have just homeschooled Harry. That would have solved the entire seven year security <laughs> problems. Another question. Did Creature live through the Battle of Hogwarts? And did he ever find out that the locket was destroyed? And we can probably tie this in also to what happened to some of our favorite Wizarding World locations. Uh, Brooke on Patreon asked specifically about Grimmauld Place. And, and I'd like to think that Creature did survive. We didn't hear anything to indicate. Otherwise, I know he comes out screaming with a frying pan to defend those that he now cares about. So I could see him going back to Grimmauld Place afterwards and really supporting whoever uh, decides to live there, which I would assume Harry still has from Sirius's will. I wonder if that frying pan has uh, is from Jacob Kowalski's bakery. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's a good question. I would like to think that Creature lived as well. He was clearly very energized during that battle. I'll put it this way. I don't know if uh, the author would want to kill Dobby and Creature. That seems especially harsh. So for that reason, maybe Creature survived. Yeah. Well, in Creature, not to say that Dobby doesn't have character development. He definitely does. But Dobby is always, you know, sort of a moral center in terms of the characters in this series. So he's very consistent throughout the books. Creature experiences a transformation. And ultimately, everything that happened to him that made him who he was before wasn't his fault. So it is satisfying to think that Creature lived and, you know, hopefully went on to have a peaceful (laughs) remainder of his days. Um, I'm hoping that Harry became more gracious with him after the events of these books. Um, But (laughs) there's still a ton of unanswered questions about the house elf situation in the wizarding world. 
still a lot left up in the air with that. We could have a whole conversation yeah. <laughs> about that, honestly. Add it to I've the got doc. a million questions bouncing around in my head about like, do they still make the house elves cook all the food at Hogwarts? Probably. Oh, I was going to say probably not. It's interesting, though, too, because I feel like while Creature was in the movies in in Deathly Hallows part one, it feels like he didn't get justice. Like to your point, what you were just talking about, Laura, like his character development is definitely there in the books. But in the movie, you know, he's just kind of used as a bit of comic relief to to chase down Mondungus with, with Dobby. And oh, I love, love that scene. But I feel it was a miss by Yates and team to not have Creature. And and I say this really about the entire battle of Hogwarts, right? There was so much that was missing from that battle where you you basically had the entire wizarding community come together and storm in and that never happened in the movie and I don't understand why it didn't. Well, even the people that did show up, you're like who is that? Like who's on broom swinging by for one second? Is that Oliver Wood returning to Hogwarts? We just don't know <laughs> because the movie can't spend that And he time. was supposedly cast in that film and and we never saw him. Well, and also remind me were they not going to include Creature in movie five? And then Rowling said, do make sure you do. Yeah. So they did. They did prioritize him in the movie adaptation then. So that's another reason to argue he should have appeared again during the Battle of Hogwarts. That's a great point. Just a couple of other places to talk about in the Wizarding World. The first, Gringotts, destroyed thanks to Harry, Ron, and Hermione, uh, and a dragon going through the ceiling. Do we think that uh, it got repaired? Everything's uh, working fine there again? Or is that also a place that now has security issues? They had insurance. (laughs) Yeah, it's also a very important uh, wizarding institution. So I think it would be a high priority to restore Gringotts. I'm sure some apologies were issued by Harry and maybe Ron and Hermione as well, because that was quite a mess that they made. I love the idea of as the trio grows in power and starts working in London, that the goblins would still be sour with them when they show up to get like money out at the bank. That would be <laughs> hilarious. Like we we want to pressure you to issue a formal apology because we're going to make your life miserable if you don't. But if they're also working in government, they could be more of a resource to the goblins and the goblins can be like, hey, you still owe us one. Yeah. You still need to get that one steeple fixed. We still got to get that one door fixed over here. Can we get some government money to fix all this, please? It's for the people. Remind me, though, was Voldemort killing everybody in Gringotts? Was that a movieism? I think it happens in, in the book, too, that he, well, the people that let the trio into his vault. I mean, don't let, but oh. inadvertently cause Bellatrix's vault to be breached. In the movie, he just straight up murders all the goblins that have even come to like tell him that. Okay. Yeah, because I was going to say there's nobody left to work at Gringotts either. So I don't know, maybe if they oh, yeah, <laughs> just yeah. closed he didn't it down. He that many people. But... but yeah, I think a few main big guys. All right. And hopefully Hermione would introduce a better magical security system so that Gringotts didn't feel the need to, you know, mistreat a living creature to act as their giant dragon guard dog. How about the Room of Requirement? Was it accessible after the Fiendfire ravaged through it in the seventh book? In doing research for today's episode, I was seeing this question come up a lot around the internet. 
And well, y'all, looks like Potter No More pulled another Potter No More. I saw this article on the site that said the room may no longer exist. So not even the the official website for the Wizarding World has a definitive answer for the fate of the room and requirement. Not only is Lavender Brown alive, she lives in the room of requirement. Oh, there you go. Problem solved. I look, the room and requirement, you get anything you want out of there. I have to think the room and requirement could save itself. It can do everything else. Oh. Well, yeah, I agree. I think it's beneath the dignity of the room of requirement in inanimate object to be killed by one pissant who issues a spell from his wand that he doesn't understand. I have to think that they're leaving this vague and open-ended so that they could potentially use the Room of Requirement in the future if they wanted to. But this also has the convenience of eliminating a plot hole, effectively, kind of like destroying time turners Mm -hmm. in the original books. They brought them back for Cursed Child, which was a choice. It certainly was. I think you could describe it as. But I think that you can argue there's something broken about there just being a room that you can go and get whatever you want or need from. Well, once they established that it could create portals to other areas, like the Hogshead, for instance, which is nearby, but still like once once they figured out that it's a way you can get in and out of Hogwarts, that gave the room too much power and I think started creating some of that plot hole stuff, which is maybe why the author decided to like destroy it at the end. Um, but otherwise, it creates things from what it already has. So it's the fact that like the room was probably pretty cool when it was first built, but is awesome for all the things that students have like put in it since. So like that's something that like gets better with age. Mm-hmm. The thing I'll say there, if it is destroyed. Or not working or like broken. It's like a holodeck where it doesn't fully (laughs) recreate whatever you ask it for. Um, I feel like it could be repaired or rebuilt because we often think of Hogwarts as this like immortal type thing. But the people who made it were just wizards, right? It was the four founders are are given such prestige of like they lived a thousand years ago. But like surely there would be wizards eventually who were as powerful or could figure out how the rumor requirement was first made and remake it at Hogwarts. There has to be that ability. If you built it once, you can build it again, build it again. Yeah. It can't be the, that fire could not be the first fire to hit the rumor requirement. That room has been there a while. People are doing a lot of strange stuff in there. Amazing. Making a lot of requests. I mean, Dumbledore uses that uh, for number one or number two. We don't know which, but maybe that's why the room was so flammable. (laughs) Perhaps. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, I like to think that it is part of the magic of Hogwarts and thus can't be fully destroyed. I accept that answer, that theory. All right. Well, we also heard from our patrons who had a number of good questions. And uh, the first one here from Deborah, I think we already answered a little bit earlier on in the episode. She asked, how exactly did Remus and Tonks die? JK Rowling uh, gave us the answer post-Deathly Hallows saying that Remus was killed by Dolohov and Tonks by Bellatrix. She also asked about the veil, which I know we talked a little bit about earlier, but not sure if anybody wants to add anything else. What's the deal with it? it yeah. Is is it the actual veil between life and death, the living and the dead realms? What's with the whispers that Luna and Harry hear? Why is it them? Lots of questions, but I just say that's why it's in the Department of Mysteries. Nobody really knows and nobody can know. 
And to tie this into the Deathly Hallows theme that we're doing here, I think, Laura, you were convinced going into book seven that it would play a role, right? In book yeah, seven. absolutely. I, I thought the whole Department of Mysteries would play a role, specifically the veil. Um, it's also my headcanon. I have nothing verifiable to prove this is the case. But my headcanon is that the veil has always been there and has always existed. Right. And that they built the Ministry of Magic around it. That's super interesting. I remember hearing that your theory for the first time, mind just blown. It was awesome. Yeah. And I, I wanted I wanted some st- substantiation. Like, I wanted to know why it's there. Where did it come from? What purpose does it serve apart from killing people <laughs> and housing their spirits? You know, it's not that far in terms of like kilometers from Stonehenge. Like that's near that's right. just a little bit away from London, like an ancient amphitheater type thing. Yeah, exactly. It's like this unknowable construction that, you know, is real and has always been there, but you don't know exactly who was behind it or why. Exactly. All right. Helen wanted to know, what would Snape's Boggart look like? Rowling wouldn't say what his Boggart or Patronus were in interviews prior to the final book because she said that it would reveal too much. Obviously, we found out what his Patronus was, a doe. Uh, but I don't think we'd ever learn about his boggart, though we could maybe say it would be what we see happen on screen between Snape and Lily in Deathly Hallows, part two, right? Mm-hmm. When he's cradling her. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, I see it similar to a Mrs. Weasley, the woes of Mrs. Weasley Dead situation. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think so too. I was going to say James, but I like your answer better. Uh, yeah, I was going to say I was going to say if his Patronus is a doe to me, Lily, but his Boggart would be a stag, and it would really, oh, it would yeah. really, it would Ooh, really confuse people. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Yeah. Do we think that Snape's Boggart might have changed? I'm imagining that maybe before Lily died, his Boggart was his dad. Yeah, yeah. His dad, and then after Lily died, it became. Deadly. Or at a certain Ooh. point, being found out by Voldemort, maybe even, or something like some mm-hmm. kind of weird like nuance there. We heard from Ben on Patreon, who says, I always felt that Deathly Hallows doesn't really address this seemingly incredible coincidence that both Harry and Voldemort were descendants of the Peverils, and therefore each got a Deathly Hallow as a family heirloom. Well, Voldemort had to use a bit more force to get the ring from his family. Yes, that's true. But had everything gone well with his family and his mother hadn't been cast out, that ring would have come to him just like Harry's invisibility cloak came to him. I love this whole theory, but I think the reason it didn't get paid off is because we only found out about the Peverils in book seven. And so all the backstory we had to learn, there was no time to also give us more of a conclusion to that. I did like, though, that it really solidified Harry and Voldemort's connection as being something that extended beyond their own lives. Like they were destined, like, through fate. Yeah. Yeah. This next one comes from McCall. What happened to Fox after Dumbledore's funeral? Did he ever return to Hogwarts, or did he ever visit Aberforth, or did he just return to the wild? I would hope Fox just returned to the wild after many years. Now, I know Dumbledore's office is peaceful, but after many years in Hogwarts around all the kids, let the bird run free. You would think it's in Dumbledore's will, you know, what happens to Fox after Dumbledore passes. Is Dumbledore the last of his line? 
we now know that there's this whole Phoenix connection with this family. So is Fox going away until a future Dumbledore, maybe like a great nephew? Or he's given the credence. He goes, he flies back to credence. Aurelius, he's, he's definitely me. still alive uh, during the <laughs> Harry Potter books. Yeah. This is dark, but because we know how intrinsically tied to the Dumbledore lineage the Phoenix is, it feels to me like the Dumbledore line is done. At this point in the series, we can presume that Credence slash Aurelius died after Fantastic Beasts 3. And assuming Aberforth doesn't have any other children we don't know about, I think the line is done, which makes me wonder what happens to Fox. Like, does he continue to exist or is his existence no longer necessary because there are no more Dumbledores to serve? That is dark and sad. I know. I It's where my mind goes. <laughs> but I hope Aberforth lived a very long life after Albus died. And who after the surprise of Secrets of Dumbledore with uh, Aberforth being the father of Credence slash Aurelius, who knows? Maybe there were a couple more kids. Many more summer <laughs> flings, if you will. Oh, I love that. He's that kind of guy. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. yeah, the fox just hangs out at the hogshead now. He's just on a perch next to the um, beer tap. Aberforth is just very prolific. Yeah. And comes and goes <laughs> as he pleases. He doesn't have to hang out there. He can just yeah. go where he wants. Try not to think of it as death. Try to think of it as rebirth. I like to think he's just hanging out with Fluffy in the Forbidden Forest. <laughs> They're friends. They're buds. Yeah, I mean, it's an immortal bird, right? So I don't have a good answer. I would have liked to have seen a Deathly Hallows cameo, though. So Steph says, I always wondered where Voldemort thinks Snape is getting his insider information from, since Snape seemingly cuts ties with the Order after killing Dumbledore. In the first chapter of Deathly Hallows, Snape convinces Voldemort that he has the correct intel about when the Order is moving Harry, and all he says is it's, from the source we discussed. Who is the source they discussed? And how was this enough to convince Voldemort? Great question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think this is answered in the book. I think it's dung. I think because they, they have to strategically, the order has to pick a date to move Harry. And it has to be the correct date because of Snape being a double agent. So I think that it is said at one point, I think that one of the order members, and I think it's dung because he's so unscrupulous, is told by the order to leak it. And then that's, and then so when Snape cooperates, it makes him look better. But the order, members of the order didn't know Snape was a double agent, right? I mean, right. No, I'm thinking it's possible. I, I do remember what you're saying, Eric, that it, it was done, but I wonder if Snape used legitimacy on him or, or somehow com- compelled him to give up the information unknowingly. I think you might be right. Justin in our Discord is saying the same thing. Wasn't it because he read Mundungus's mind? So that could that's ringing a bell for me. Mundungus seems like he would be very susceptible <laughs> to having his mind read. Didn't he let it slip at the hogshead, or am I thinking like book five stuff? We need to give this a good Google. I'm sure somebody has an answer. I'm asking <laughs> for I'm answer. asking Meg. <laughs> While we do. James has probably the most important question of today's discussion, and that is what became of Florian Fortescue's ice cream parlor after he was so tragically and unnecessarily killed? Yeah, talk about deaths being cruel. The ice cream man. She went for the ice cream man. 
the ice cream man, the owl, the he poor house Harry, elf who was just Harry recently free freed. Ice cream we need and to explore with her childhood and what issues she had with the ice cream man. I'd like to think that this is where a beloved character ended up taking charge of just, you know, giving people ice cream, spreading joy. I'd like to believe it well, went to somebody who had the exact disposition that Florian himself had. Rupert Grant had an ice cream truck, right? There he you had go. one for a while. So he hopped into the Wizarding World and started running Florian Fortescue's ice cream shop. You have to think that Florian had a family, a wife, a kid or two, and they took over the shop. Let's do a bit of a lightning round. We got more questions from those who follow us on social media. We are MuggleCast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and the Tickety Talk. So what do we got first, Micah? <laughs> the first comes from Goblet Echo 184, who says, How did Harry figure out so much at Shell Cottage? Just intuitively or something? Without Dumbledore or anyone? It's never really explained. He just all of a sudden figured out <laughs> figures out certain things, but how? Yeah, this goes back to what I was saying earlier about you got one book left, your yeah. back is up against the wall. It's time to get things moving really quick. The author was also really doing this in at least the early Corman strike novels, like these sudden info dumps at the end to get everything out. Maybe there's also just something about burying your favorite elf that really clears your head. You know, Harry put Dobby to rest and suddenly things started coming together for him. Maybe it's just clearing your mind at the beach, at the shore. Yes, nice walk on the beach. Sea air that really was illuminating. It's the point in the book where if Harry doesn't start intuiting answers and fast, there's going to need to be an eighth Harry Potter book to tell the story. The whole Shell Cottage sequence takes place on the heels of the Malfoy Manor sequence, which I think gives Harry some perspective into why they need to go to Bellatrix's vault, for example. So I think having that experience... And then having the time to ruminate at Shell Cottage does give him the push that he needs to figure out what the next step is. But I do agree, there is quite a bit of exposition here that feels like we're, oh, we're in this, you know, third act of this book now. (laughs) We got to wrap this up. You know, I was just DMing with Eric's girlfriend about a certain beach in New Jersey. Maybe we'll go down there together and see if it clears our heads to the point where we can solve the world's problems. I think that sounds great. I've been uh, looking to get back to OCNJ. (laughs) Please solve the world's problems. We will try. Karina underscore KK24 says, where was Severus Snape during the battle? Before he was called to his all too soon and cruel end, why was he not more involved in it? It makes no sense to me. I was looking into this one a little bit because I think it's a thought that probably crossed a lot of our minds since he's such an important character and he's having quite the moment around this time. He seems to have been summoned to Voldemort before the Battle of Hogwarts really got underway. So that's why you don't see him. Yeah, he's a trusted advisor of Voldemort at that moment. And and remember, Voldemort at that point, uh, you know, May 2nd, is beginning to suspect Snape's involvement in being the master of the Elder Wand. Uh, So Voldemort is also not letting Snape gallivant around because he's keeping him close so that he can kill him. Right. And also remember that it goes down in the Shrieking Shack, not the boathouse that doesn't exist in the book series. Right. Yes. 
that's just one thing to keep in mind, because I think maybe some of these questions are pulling from movie canon versus book canon. At least it seems that way. Sure. Yeah, it's hard to separate the two sometimes. Evil Ringo TTV said, I've always wondered if the snake Harry set on Dudley in book one ever made it to Brazil. Thanks, amigos, says Evil Ringo. Let's say yes. Yes, yeah, the snake so. made it yeah, to Brazil. I, I hope so. <laughs> Someone deserves a happy ending. Where's our seven book <laughs> series of that snake making it to Brazil? Yeah, who brought the snake to Brazil? How did it get there? No, but it slithered. It just left. Across the ocean? Yeah, it took the channel. The channel. To okay. Brazil. That's well, a long... The, no, to France and then down to Brazil. Maybe it hopped on a plane. That does happen. Snakes on a plane. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Oh, that's a scary thought. But you got to go across the ocean, too. I'm looking at a map now so I can speak authoritatively oh, Is there not a land bridge between South America and... Oh, no, wait. there is not. Whoa. <laughs> I was thinking Africa. It's Brazil, isn't it? Okay. Yes, it's Never across mind. the Atlantic. I don't know all geography, but I know some geography. Across okay. the equator. All right. I'm saying boat or plane. Snuck onto one of the two. Well, this one comes from Nessa Eve on Twitter. What happened with Ginny and Harry to make them fall in love? From the outside, it's a snooze. Wow. wow. Shots fired. Well, luckily, somebody here on the panel really ships them hard. That's right. And I'm going to make public the first two chapters that I've written of my Harry and Ginny fan fiction uh, in, in, I think, a Google Doc form will be easiest. And that should give some insight to what I feel is Harry and Ginny's canonical inner feelings toward each other and what their relationship was really like, because it is skipped over in Half-Blood Prince. There's just a couple of empty weeks in the middle of nowhere. So after that, it takes place, my fanfic does, uh, right after their kiss following the Quidditch match and moves over through several sunlit days. It's a title. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Yandu is cool says the whole Nagini slash Bathilda stuff, like how? <laughs> yeah, that for me, like, okay, it's clearly the darkest of magic that's like so dark that we can never know about it, partly because J.K. Rowling doesn't want to scare anybody, but also because we just don't know anybody that's that dark to practice that besides Voldemort and we're not getting his POV. They're like, it it creeped me out that it was a possible thing. But as weird as it is in the book, it's just scary in the movie. Like it's, I feel like it loses something. Like it, it loses a, it's almost more believable in the book that something like that could happen because it's almost like a kind of a voodoo thing. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's really interesting. Like how Voldemort is how. That's how. Yeah. Jen's bookshelf, that's a cute name, said, what is Neville's Patronus? Haunts me to this day. It's his remember all. <laughs> Doing some Googling, though, it says his Patronus doesn't take shape of anything. It might be because when they're training, it's enough that that he produced it, you know, because like Harry gets everybody in the DA up to snuff where they 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 actually like get to the point where they get pretty good at producing Patronuses. But I think Neville's whenever we would happen to see it is just described as like a vaguely defined blur. Right. As he's like growing up, coming yeah. of age, you're saying he probably is able to form a Patronus. I'd like to think so. He's a wholesome good dude. How about just like a wholesome good animal like Bulbasaur? Bulbasaur. Bulbasaur. Yeah. 
Yes. That would Something be that eats plants. A herbivore. <laughs> yeah. It would be funny if Neville's Patronus is a, a Brachiosaurus or something huge, just like insanely big. Listener challenge. Let's get Neville's Patronus on the wiki. Bulbasaur. <laughs> Bulbasaur. <laughs> Rubberfish7 wants to know, how much did good old Aberforth know? You want to take this one, Micah? Mr. Goatman? I mean, he's full of surprises. Just look at uh, Secrets of Dumbledore. I bet he knew everything. He knew everything. He knew it all. He knew about the Deathly Hallows. He knew about the Peverells. He knew about the Horcruxes. He knew everything. He was just sitting back, pouring beers in the hogshead, letting it all unfold. You know, we don't see Dumbledore and Aberforth together much in, in the Harry Potter books, but there is that scene in Secrets of Dumbledore where they are eating dinner together. And maybe they did, you know, eat dinner together very regularly over the years. And that's partly how Aberforth came to know all of this information. Do we see them together at all in the Harry Potter series? Together at all? Hmm. I don't think so. Yeah, I guess not. Except for the funeral. I think that's the only time they're, well, that's not really together, but. Right. And they also have a strained relationship. So that explains that. But again, they did have dinner together. Uh, Some soup, was it? But I'm confused now. Because it seems like, and maybe we find out more in future Fantastic Beasts films if we get them, but they don't seem to have that strained of a relationship in Mm. the Fantastic Beasts series. And of course, this is post-Ariana. The Aberforth that we see in the Harry Potter series still seems to hold a great deal of resentment for what happened to Ariana. It's true. It's hard to tell whether that's, uh, you know, kind of a retcon sort of thing, or if Dumbledore's distance from his brother is a convenient um, misdirection. Kind of like how Dumbledore convinced everyone that the Shrieking Shack was actually haunted when it wasn't. Uh, He's equally convincing everyone that his brother and him aren't close. But we know that strategically, Aberforth is needed. And especially after Albus's death, Aberforth is... I think counted on, and I think we can even say directly by Albus to have some desire to help Harry complete his mission. Agreed. Yeah, and maybe as Aberforth got older, he just got angrier at what happened in his earlier years, perhaps. Mm. You know how people get older. Yeah, they get crankier as you get older. Well, I mean, think about something that maybe happened when you were younger that you were, you know, maybe a little inexperienced, a little naive to be able to fully understand the gravity of it until you were much older. And then you're really mad about it because you're like, holy crap, with the perspective of adulthood, I now understand how messed up that was. So that could be what happened here. Definitely. Russ Turner wants to know, where was Fluffy? With Fox. Like during the Battle of Hogwarts? Yeah. (laughs) That would have been nice to see Fluffy there. Yeah, Fluffy would have come in clutch. That. (laughs) <laughs> Reminds me, though, too, I thought we were supposed to see the Ford Anglia again, and we never did. Supposed to? Was that promised to us? It might have been one of those things where it's like, <laughs> I think I think, the, I think the, the question was, well, where is it? And the answer given was, still there. It's wild. It's still wild. Maybe we'll see it again kind of a thing. So wasn't it? Yeah. Didn't it fight in the battle? Didn't it like come out honking and make a big deal? That would have been great. That would have been like Beauty and the Beast. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It would have been awesome if during the whole forest confrontation between Harry and Voldemort, all of a sudden the car comes in and Harry gets away. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> you you hear it coming from a mile away because it's so old and noisy. Candle Books Rain said, The trace and the taboo on Voldemort's name seemed like cop-outs to me, not logically sound. Yeah. Uh, really? Uh. 
Well, that's an example of something, again, very convenient, but something that could have made more sense if we had seen it before. Like the thing about the trace or the, the thing about the taboo is it could have been implemented at any point in history, especially when people didn't want people saying his name for fear he might return, but it wasn't. So it seemed convenient because it was introduced in the 11th hour and then also never brought back. So why did it exist? Why was it there? When has that been used before in history? These are questions that as a reader, you kind of have, and they outweigh like mm. the use in the book. I, I actually don't think it's a cop out because all of his supporters refer to him as the Dark Lord. And then everybody else is so scared of him, they refer to him as he who must not be named. So clearly anybody who uses the name Voldemort is somebody who's looking to oppose him. And he knows, I think, that Harry is one of those people. So the list will be short. It's really smart, but that's my problem with it is who of the Dark Lord supporters is that smart? That they would then be like, we need to make this a taboo, a thing that nobody's ever heard of, because maybe Harry's... Voldemort himself. I, I don't know. Yeah. And finally, Lady Mass said, I wanted to know more about the aftermath of the battle. Was Azkaban just packed? <laughs> Should have been. Could have been. Maybe they added another wing in light of all the new residents. The Malfoy wing. <laughs> oh, yeah. The Malfoy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the Malfoy and extended family members wing of Azkaban. My question is, do the Dementors come back? I mean, they flew. They just, they cannot be contained. I think the Wizarding World would very realistically have a Dementor problem after Voldemort's defeat. So what does what does prison even look like anymore is my big question. By the way, to get back to our Aberforth-Dumbledore relationship question real quick, there was a point brought up by Justin in our Patreon Discord that I really agree with. Justin said maybe it's after Credence dies that Aberforth starts turning sour towards mm. Albus. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, like you and your darn plots, Albus. It claimed another victim, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, it claimed the son who I always knew and always loved. <laughs> but like... <laughs> who I, we always knew and always but, loved. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like Albus knew he was in New York for a few years. So it's like that's more time that Aberforth could have had with his kid if Albus wasn't all about using him as bait to trap Grindelwald. Yeah. Where have we yeah. heard that story before? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. So I just want to give a quick shout out to the cursed child because it did answer some questions that we never would have had answers to otherwise, where the trio's kids were sorted into, which Hogwarts houses, where the original trio worked. I'll never forget being at the first showing of cursed child. And Hermione says that she's minister for magic and the audience just lost its mind. And uh, I think, Eric, you put this in very smart. Where are the gays? Well, they're here. Yeah, that's a question <laughs> sort of. that Cursed Child answers. Where are the real canonically gay characters? Oh, wait, we still kind of don't have it. But now, given the new rewrites, Cursed Apparently. Child, yes, uh, Albus Severus and Scorpius love each other. So I think that that's a beautiful thing. If you have any feedback about today's discussion, you can send an owl to MuggleCast at gmail.com, or you can use the contact form on MuggleCast.com. To send a voice message, record it using the Voice Memo app on your phone, and then email us that file, or use our phone number, 192033Muggle. That's 192036844453. However, again, just remember, if you send a howler, please give us a warning so we can turn our volume down. Thank you. And, and a huge thank you to all of the listeners and patrons who submitted questions. We got a lot this week, so it was tough to choose which ones to include. 
yes, thank you so much, everybody. We will store those and then maybe revisit them, the ones that we didn't discuss today in a future episode. Next week on MuggleCast, we will be revisiting our reactions to Deathly Hallows after reading the book. We're going to pull some clips from that reaction episode, I think. And then we'll pull some old emails from the days after the book was released. We have this email account going back 17 years, I guess. And every email in existence is still in there. Thank you, Google and Gmail. So we'll go back to the year 2007 and find some of those emails and read them and get some some of our reactions, some of your reactions from July 2007 after reading the final book. And we'll also maybe do some present-day muggle mail if we have time. But for now, it's time for Quizitch. Last week's question. Which of Umbridge's educational decrees, what number, barred teachers from giving the students any information that was not related to the subjects in which they were hired to teach? The correct answer is educational decree number 26. 26, counted them myself. Correct answers were submitted by Buff Daddy, Eliana, Evil Ringo, Rachel M., Ollie, Sir King of Kings, the copy of Magic Most Evil from the restricted section of the library, the Rogue Niffler, Vecna's Man Bun, Wild Witch of Yorkshire, a watering can worth 20 points, and a modest fire whiskey with a gillywater chaser, slice of lemon, and sprig of mint. Hello, summer drink. I'm going to have to try that. Gotta try that. Normally, I don't shout out anybody who gave the incorrect answer, but somebody who gave their name as I read the Harry Potter books in a week. Very impressive. That is impressive. Did guess Educational Decree 23. And I would say it was 26. Next time when you read the Better books, read them again. more time. Yeah. I know, I know, I know. Yeah, <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, thank you all to uh, all who were playing our favorite weekly open book quiz. Here is next week's quiz question. In Deathly Hallows during the camping scenes, after complaining about their meal to Harry and Hermione and saying his mom can conjure food from thin air, what does Ron summon for dinner? It's not ice cream. It's not ice cream. Submit your answer via the form on MuggleCast website. Click on Quizich from the menu or go to MuggleCast.com slash Quizich. Thank you so much. Do you enjoy MuggleCast? We hope you do. Make sure you're following the show for free in your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode and leave us a review if your app allows you to. And once again, don't forget to follow us on social media. We are MuggleCast on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Tickety Talk. I'm glad Eric got a kick out of that <laughs> That's earlier. so funny. <laughs> okay. Uh, glad you're tickled. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this week's episode. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.